Welcome to Counterspin Media. Today is the 28th of July 2021. Joining me in the studio shortly will be longtime historian, researcher, and archaeo astronomer Martin Dutre. Now, before we delve into what will undoubtedly be a highly controversial show uh, that will certainly put a few noses out of place, I kid you not, uh, let me update you on a few subjects. A week from now, August 4th, uh, that's my son's Jesse's 30th birthday, so shout out to him. Um, Liz Lambert will be joining me to answer all your outstanding questions related to load your claims, taxes, mortgages, and any other that our audience out there may have. <clears throat> so send those to info, any questions you have, to info at counterspinmedia.com, or of course go to the website, counterspinmedia.com, and um, message us through that. Uh, the promised documents relating to those previous shows will be um, loaded up under the site resources tab on the website as soon as we have finished with the tech team and the finalizing the email system. Um, that doesn't, of course, affect you uh, emailing us and us replying. We have had a letter sent in asking uh, from someone if uh, you need, require a justice of the peace um, to sign off on the allodial claims letter sent to councils, etc. The answer Liz gave was, no, you don't. So that hope that answers that for you. On another note, the PCR test, as of December 31st this year, will be withdrawn, um, or the CDC, Centre for Disease Control, will be um, uh, seeking to withdraw emergency use authorization from the Federal Drug Administration. Why? Well, let me tell you, because it doesn't work. Never did. So the whole pandemic, scamdemic, was perpetrated on the fact that the PCR test was picking up everything, flu included. Remember how the um, suddenly the COVID suddenly wiped out and cured the common cold? Well, it, well, influenza, it didn't. It was just included in the numbers. So once again, we see the whole thing is a farce. So that is being withdrawn. And of course, they'll come up with something else to sort of keep driving and make you want to go and get the death jab. Okay, although their narrative is falling to pieces, uh, their propaganda is coming to pieces as well. Um, no one's believing it anymore. And this whole safe and effective, because it's, it's experimental, doesn't finish, of course, until June uh, 2023 they have no case of which to base their claim that it is safe and effective it's like me taking a uh, before I, I get into a car start it ready for a test run and saying yeah it's perfect even before I've taken it for a drive it just doesn't happen so without further ado let's bring Martin Dutre in now and let's uh, get this controversy underway <laughs> Martin welcome to the show and uh, let's go what have we got Right, well, uh, one thing that we've seen in recent years is uh, Western democracies have been under assault and um, we've seen the um, erosion of uh, rights uh, all over the world and at the moment uh, America is really uh, getting done. They are. Uh, and, um, you know, what is actually happening to them happened to us uh, over the past <coughs> 30, 40 years and... Um, Basically, our Treaty of Waitangi that used to be a document of unification and protection for all of the people of New Zealand, it got nullified and uh, now it's in tatters and we don't have the rights that we formerly had. Um, and in fact, we're moving into a situation of what some people might describe as apartheid or um, definitely separatism where we've got uh, two classes of individuals in New Zealand um, those who are the elitists and those who are the second-class citizens. And it's all because of what has happened 
to the Treaty of the uh, Treaty of Waitangi and its true meaning. And of course, this racial divide has been perpetrated by, like you say, the elitists and then the rest of us. And the rest of us are including brown, black, green, brindle. It doesn't matter, right? Right. Well, um, my particular generation, and I'm getting a bit long in the tooth, we can remember when New Zealand was a very together country and uh, we were getting along famously well. And um, during that period of time, uh, through the 60s and around about 66, I left New Zealand, went overseas and... uh, I really did encounter, you know, racial problems and uh, riots and a lot of um, uh, dissidents amongst the population. But New Zealand, when I left, was a very together country. I returned eight years later to find it uh, really uh, being oppressed and um, a lot of our history being um, erased. And uh, then I saw the complete uh, erosion of the Treaty of Waitangi. And little by little, uh, the country changed radically. You actually have a um, a website with the uh, one of the articles to which you refer. You recently wrote that um, if people want to uh, go to that website while we're doing the show, you can actually read along and actually substantiate it as we go. If you want to give them the website and uh, how to find it, that'll be great. Right. Um, well, I've got a couple of websites, but uh, the one to do with the very long-term history of New Zealand the pre-Maori history that we all used to talk about, but now it's been stripped out of all of our history books. Yeah, not allowed now. Not allowed anymore. Um, that website is www.celticnz.co.nz, and uh, you'll get uh, many, many articles uh, where we do original research. We go around the country and uh, we... Uh, visit the ancient pre-Maori sites. Uh, most of them are like solar observatories. There are structures all over New Zealand uh, that were built by the Patupayatahe and Tūtuhu people who preceded Maori in this country. Of course, we are going to have a show on that. Mm. This is going to particularly focus on Titiliti Waitangi, the Treaty of Waitangi, um, and documents related to that, and you're not going to want to miss this. Right, well... Um, yeah, we, we saw this insidious thing begin uh, around about, oh, 1974, 75, and uh, what it was, um, we had a treaty that unified the country, and it had stood, the uh, meaning of that treaty had stood for 135 years unchallenged. But then, uh, because of other uh, forces that were moving around in the country at the time, Uh, Little by little, it got eroded and its meaning got completely changed. So what we'll actually get into uh, here is all of the dirty tricks that were used to actually falsify the treaty and dupe the New Zealand public into believing that the treaty actually meant something totally different from what we all believed it meant for 135 years. And this is the reason why we're having so many problems with the... um some quarters being called racist and white supremacists and others being dogged, mm-hmm. basically. Good. Yep. Yeah, so um, really uh, what it was, um, the big problem, the original final draft of the Treaty of Waitangi in English, the one that became the mother document for Te Tiriti o Waitangi, it got lost sometime in February 1840. And um, that was the cause of the the problem um, 135 years later where 
the treaty could be uh, revisited and redefined as to its meaning. Um, but the final English draft of the treaty was found again in 1989 when the Littlewood family were going through uh, family papers of the deceased estate of their um, uh, mother and um, they found uh, this uh, document which was labelled the Treaty of Waitangi in a drawer uh, in a sideboard and it turned out to be, we've through investigation, we now know that that is the authentic final draft of the Treaty of Waitangi and it changes everything. That is definitely something people need to know because the amount of, how would you say, rubbish being pushed by this government, um, complicit, of course, by media and academia, as we uh, discussed earlier, definitely needs to have a, a major light shine on it. And uh, then maybe once we sort that, bring people up to date on what really happened and where we really should be, we can then start putting a, <coughs> putting a sword to this um, rubbish. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the document that was found in uh, 1989 in a drawer in Pukekohe. Um, it's uh, not terribly long. Uh, it goes over two pages. For a very long period of time, uh, members of the New Zealand public could not get a copy of this. And if you were, you know, once they found uh, that um, it was in the uh, public arena, it was found in 1989, but it didn't really come into public notice until 1992. And uh, it was gifted by the Littlewood family to Archives New Zealand. But. Um, it was to be kept secret. Typical. And uh, thankfully, a whistleblower in archives um, alerted the media that this document had been found, and all of a sudden it was like a, a media uh, shark's feeding frenzy to sort of find out what it uh, looked like. And then uh, the government, the archives, um, uh, the minister of uh, archives, they had to go into damage control and do all that they could to... Um, discredit, discredit, and um, yeah, just uh, throw cold water all over the find. The usual mo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that of course is contained in your book, the Littlewood Treaty. Yes. Uh, After, of course, the fact that it got found uh, in the um, uh, by the Littlewood family, and mm -hmm. then, like you say, gifted to archives of where they, yep, brought it, it out, and away you went. It took two years of research to actually write this article, but maybe we could just go into some of the um, very, very important things that, yeah, that's, uh, that's yeah, the... Uh, so we'll of, bring that one up. Yeah, we'll bring that one up. That's good, yeah. Um, this is what's really happening uh, across the world. Like, uh, we have here what you might call the founding document of the United States, and uh, that is the, um, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, it's, it's only a founding document in that afterwards a lot of blood had to be spilt before they could move on from that to having a constitution and a bill of rights. And really the founding document, if you want to call it that, or the permission slip that allowed us to form a colony in New Zealand is Te Tiriti o Waitangi. And... Um, the British never really wanted to uh, annex New Zealand and uh, form a colony. Um, all the 
time through from Captain Cook uh, right through to uh, 1837. But finally, uh, certain forces sort of told them that they had to, you know, start considering New Zealand as a colony. And um, so uh, what happened is uh, our treaty, um, which was our permission slip, uh, was nullified 135 years later, and all of the um, wonderful uh, articles in it that brought unity to this newly formed colony, uh, they were um, just completely, uh, well, nullified. Mm. <clears throat> of course, you've got the argument being taken by some that the Titiliti of Waitangi and the English text, the Treaty of Waitangi, are not one and the same um, because they don't translate and all that sort of stuff. And people, you know, some say um, we never ceded sovereignty, or only, we only ceded governance and all that sort of thing. How do we address that? Well, what it was, um, I actually blame it on circumstances that started to kind of hatch around about uh, 1972 with uh, Maturata. And what it was, um, because of a lot of the um, uh, problems that were occurring in our society at the time uh, due to, well, it was seemed to me to be instigated by the Polynesian Panther Party, and uh, they were really um, into uh, black American uh, attire. Um, they absolutely idolised the Panther Party of the United States. And uh, things that sort of started at that particular point in time uh, led into uh, really undermining New Zealand society. We just brought them up. These are the people you're talking about? Yep. Uh, well, those are the... Um, the ones in the US? Yeah, in the United States of America. And um, they were a people who had experienced slavery. And um, so they had their, only, their own gripes and groans and their need for civil rights or whatever. But here in New Zealand, uh, the Polynesians absolutely adored everything black American. And um, so they... Um, wanted to be bro in arms with the with the black Americans. And uh, so what, what they did was um, they conjured up a history under uh, oppression from the British imperialists, uh, a history that had never, ever occurred. And, um, you know, it, it grew... Uh, in uh, force over a period of some years, uh, and uh, then later it uh, started to infiltrate um, our universities, uh, the unions in New Zealand that were heavily Marxist at the time, most of them leaning towards Soviet communism. Um, they uh, started taking individuals and sending them to Cuba or to China or to... Uh, the Soviet Union, uh, in order to uh, get them to get indoctrination training. And some even got sent to Libya for arms training. And boy, is that paying off for them now. Yeah, and what they did, they brought these dissidents back to New Zealand and they were to cause helter-skelter, you know, to uh, undermine the New Zealand society. And I found that initially Maori didn't take any real interest in what the Polynesians were doing. Um, it was there was a lot of sort of animosity at the time 
between the Maoris and the uh, the Polynesians, and a lot of my friends uh, uh, who are Maori, they used to speak in very derogatory terms about uh, you know what was going on there in Ponsonby. Yeah, and um, yeah, so uh, little by little, uh, New Zealand society started to change, and there was a lot of talk about oppression under British imperialism. Yeah, yeah. Right, we'll bring up a. Um, do you want to talk about the actual this document here we're right. about to bring up? Yes, the Littlewood document found in 1989 and uh, gifted by the Littlewood family. Perhaps we can find a picture of uh, the Littlewood uh, family um, if uh, if it's there. Um, yes, yeah, so you've got um, John Littlewood and his wife, his uh, sister Beryl. We're cleaning up the estate uh, of the deceased mother, and uh, they found the uh, the document. Yeah. And then over the next couple of years, John did everything that he could yeah, to yeah. – uh, yeah, that's him there. That's John, yep. And uh, he needed to – needed providence or, or, you know, to at least uh, to prove providence of uh, the significance of the document. And um, – he couldn't really get very far with it, uh, but finally um, he contacted uh, Claudia Orange, who came to his home, and she stated, oh, this could be the long-lost Treaty of Waitangi that everybody's been looking for uh, for all these years. And uh, then she encouraged him to put it into the uh, National Archives, uh, sort of, sort of putting the fear of God into them that uh, anybody knowing that he had this document, they could break into the home and steal it. So uh, they took it to Wellington and they lodged it with the um, with the <coughs> National Archives. And then, of course, um, word of it got leaked to the New Zealand public, and that's how the public learnt of this discovery. But um, for it to qualify as the um, the true... Treaty of Waitangi mother document, the one from which uh, Te Tiritio Waitangi was translated, it had to f- have certain criteria yep. um, that proved its pedigree. So the first thing that uh, the archives were going to have to do and promise to do was find out who wrote it. Now we know from historical records that the author of the final draft of the Treaty of Waitangi, put together on the 4th of February 1840, was James Busby, the British consul that um, Hobson was replacing. Just before you go on, um, we, have, we have a lot of documents that we'll be showing you as facts and evidence, because this is what we are on the show. So if they don't come up immediately, just bear with us. We will get this through, but please continue to watch this, because by the time you finished in this... You'll have a degree in um, New Zealand history, the real one. (laughs) Right. So we were looking for a document that was in the handwriting of James Busby. And if it was in somebody else's handwriting, then it wasn't the uh, mother document to Te Tiritio Waitangi. And um, that particular information was suppressed for years. There were newspaper articles at the time where um, the – Government historians were um, stating such things as, we may never know who wrote this. <laughs> well, at Auckland uh, uh, Museum, 
um, and Institute, there's a wad that thick of documents written by James Busby. And so it was something that you could prove overnight uh, very, very quickly that he was the author with basically with a glance by somebody who was an expert. So although the document was lodged with uh, archives in 1992, it wasn't until uh, Dr. Um, Parkinson, uh, Phil Parkinson, was walking past the document, he took a glance at it and he said, oh, that's in the handwriting of James Busby. Oh. So he identified it, whereas um, our experts had waited a whole eight years and never divulged that information to the people of New Zealand. Okay, so now we're on track to prove that this is, in fact, the um, final draft of the Treaty of Waitangi. So a second criteria that it has to fulfill is it has to say exactly the same as Teitoritio Waitangi. It's got to be a perfect translation. Correct. So anybody who's undertaking translation work, line by line, line by line, whatever is written on th this will be translated on that. Yeah. If there are any surplus words, um, they're not going to be put into the translation. So you, you can't have the text being topsy-turvy it's got to be line by line match. Yeah. Now, the other thing is you have to have a clear pedigree for the document found in 1989 going back all the way to William Hobson, the, um, the first lieutenant governor come governor of New Zealand. And um, what it was, the Littlewood family had an ancestor called Henry Littlewood. And there was a um, tradition in the family that he was somehow, in, you know, uh, involved in the Treaty of Waitangi. And um, so we find that Henry Littlewood, who was a solicitor, did conveyancy work for the U.S. Consul James Reddy Clendon. Ah, yes. So the U.S. Consul, he was actually a British citizen, but because he was servicing the whaling ships coming into the Bay of Islands and he had deep water war, a deep water wharf at Okiato where he lived, um, the Americans asked, would you please be our consul? And uh, could you re please report on ships that are coming and going if uh, any of the crews of those ships are causing trouble, any of these sorts of things. And so um, when, uh, as U.S. Consul, when there was this incentive with Hobson arriving in, uh, on the 29th of January, 1840, at the Bay of Islands from Britain and with his mission, with this mission where he was to try and secure a treaty with the Maori people, uh, if New Zealand did uh, become a colony, Clendon had to inform his superiors in Washington, D.C. Interesting. So what he did is, um, and, and it's really quite amazing, uh, he's, he's a British individual himself. He's got the largest, most beautiful home 
in the whole of the Bay of Islands, they describe it as an eight-room mansion. Most people were living in a couple of rooms or these, uh, you know, shacks. Yep. Um, but uh, he applied as U.S. consul formally to Hobson for a copy of the treaty and translation. So he needed two documents. He needed it in English and also in the Maori language. And these were supplied to him. Yep. Okay, so we've got a clear pedigree of the document going all the way back to Clendon. And then we've got a document that's been shown here where Clendon made application to have these documents supplied so that he could send them to John Forsyth, the U.S. Secretary of State, uh, telling uh, Forsyth that New Zealand was moving towards forming colonies, the first colony being up in the Bay of Islands, you know. So we've got this clear pedigree going back. And uh, this here is a receipt, uh, I think it's in 1856, where Clendon got uh, solicitor... Henry Littlewood, to do this conveyancing work with regards to a deceased estate and charge, I think it was, what, three pounds, three shillings for the work that he had done. So you show this link between Henry Littlewood and uh, Clendon. Um, so it's got an impeccable history all the way back to Hobson. So you've got a chain of command, basically. You, you, it's a paper trail that's unbroken. Yeah. Now, the reason... Uh, you know, uh, one thing I, I have to add, the Littlewood document, the final English draft of the Treaty of Waitangi, is written on W. Tucker 1833 paper. Oh, interesting. So what it is, if you want to find out who was where on particular dates or times, you have to look at the paper stock that things are recorded on. Yeah. And the only individual in New Zealand that has ever used 1833 W. Tucker paper stock is James Reddy Clendon. So from that, we know that the final English draft was written at the home of James Reddy Clendon because the uh, people who are doing secretarial work or they're doing their business transactions, they have these... um, like a, a, a big case thing that you can open up and you've got your ink wells, you've got your pens, yep. you've got your paper. Little quivers. Yeah, and um, I've actually handled one of them uh, that belonged to Gilbert Mayer, Captain Gilbert Mayer. Nice. But um, so what had happened with Hobson is he had been in the Caribbean and uh, he'd – contacted Yellow Fever there years before. And he arrived in New Zealand as a very frail, sickly man. And uh, so he was very susceptible to having breakdowns and, you know, uh, he didn't have a great deal of body strength or stamina. And he was aboard HMS Herald, and there was a lot of animosity between him and Captain Nias, who was the captain of HMS Herald. And on a particular night, uh, just after arrival, on the Saturday night, 
Hobson and his secretary had been trying to write the articles and all of the content for the Treaty of Waitangi or the proposal that they were going to put before the chiefs. And um, anyway, poor old Hobson had a terrible argument with Captain Nias on the Saturday night and it put him into such a state that he ended up with terrible migraine headaches. Wow. And um, so he couldn't proceed and he was only, what, three or four days out from having to stand in full British dignity before all of these chiefs and uh, as a Queen's representative and uh, tell them or, you know, deliver the proposal of the Treaty of Waitangi, which, you know, had to be translated into the Maori language. Yep. So what happened was um, Hobson knew he couldn't carry on and uh, he was floundering. His secretary was floundering. They had gotten about as far as a preamble. They hadn't uh, created any articles yet. So Hobson had the bits and pieces of paper that he had already taken ashore to James Busby, who Hobson was replacing, the British consul, and uh, said, James, will you, you please help us? You know, we, we need you to please write the articles and flesh out this treaty. So James Busby, he realised Hobson was in dire straits, and um, so he just launched straight into it on the Sunday. And he, he saw that they had a bit of a preamble, so he started writing the articles of the treaty. And uh, he put a lot of superfluous nonsense in there about latitude and longitude and all this stuff, but at least he was getting into it yep. to some degree. So um, then he also realised Hobson had to get the hell off that ship because of these these arguments with Captain Nias. So um, Bus Busby brought in his support group, the same support group that had helped him when he was drafting the Declaration of Independence for the Confederation of United Chiefs a few years prior. And uh, those Confederates, those people that were there to help him, were James Reddy Clendon and Henry Williams, who had actually been the translator of the earlier document. Oh, right, yeah. So um, then he also realised he had to get... Hobson off the ship, and so he arranged for Hobson to go and stay at Busby's little two-room house or batch, I guess we call it these days, at Kororareka, you know, across the, the uh, bay from Paihia. I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. I'm just nodding. <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh, yeah, basically the Bay of Islands is sort of divided up into two parts. You've got Kororareka, which is... Uh, it became Russell. Oh, yep, I know. And then across the bay, you've got Paihia, where the missionaries had their facilities and everything there at Waitangi and near, near to the Waitangi. The capital was temporarily up there, wasn't it? Yeah, Russell uh, was, for a year or two, uh, the uh, capital of New Zealand. Yep. But um, so uh, what happened is they had to build Hobson up now so that he could stand in front of the chiefs and you know, in, in full uh, British dignity. And um, so Busby wrote up this, you know, draft that he had, and he took it to uh, Hobson ashore on the evening of the 3rd of February, 1840. Yeah. 
And then they went down to Okiatau and, and to the beautiful circumstances of um, uh, James Reddy Clendon's mansion. And in that very relaxed environment, the next day on the 4th, they wrote from the early rough draft notes, they just culled out all of the nonsense, yep. and they wrote up the final draft of the Treaty of Waitangi, the information that they wished to present to the chiefs and have them consider. That document, about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, left the mansion at Okiatau, was taken by Hobson and Freeman uh, across the way, directly across to where the mission station was and home of Reverend Henry Williams and his son Edward Marsh Williams. And at four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Hobson presented this to Reverend Henry Williams and asked him, overnight, please translate this into, you know, the Maori Treaty. And that's what they did. And uh, the very next day, uh, of course, it was presented to the chiefs at Waitangi. But it'd be good to actually have a look at um, the uh, rough draft notes. Now, we're on to them right here. Okay. So let's just sort of go through these one at a time. And just to show that amongst the rough draft notes, there are or there is no final draft sufficient to, to hand over to, um, you know, a uh, translator so that the translator can, yeah. you know, make the final <laughs> translational proposal that's going to be laid before the chief. So you go through it and you see it's a hodgepodge, an absolute hodgepodge of confusion, and they're experimenting with text and they're some, crossing yeah. stuff out and they're leaving columns at the side where they can add in something if they feel like that they they thought oh well yeah. we don't want that so we'll try that <laughs> and so they do this over 16 pages wow and in you, it you never hear about that do you no and, no, and this is what that. historians or treaty researchers have got to look at go through it and see what it was that busby finally came up with and what uh, Hobson and Freeman were floundering on and, and had to actually call upon the services of Busby. Um, and then you see that there is no final draft in there anyway. So we can keep on scrolling on through, scrolling on through these. And um, there are 16 pages of it. <laughs> and uh, what happened was um, Busby wrote up his proposal on uh, the second, and then he created a sort of a, a clean copy on the third. Right. Okay. So let's see if we can get sort of towards the end of it. And, um, okay, that's pretty much the, the the end pages there. That one there is a photocopy of um, Busby's first attempt. Right. And uh, that all got recopied. We apologise, we're a bit out of order here, and I can see yeah. them to my right-hand side, they're scrambling. Yeah. Try and bring it up. <laughs> yeah, right. We're putting him through the ringer, actually, aren't we? Are. <laughs> oh, that's good. Got a team yeah. of three at the moment trying to uh, make sense and order yeah. for the for the viewers. The, the, here is your final draft notes. These are the final draft notes. And they go and do all manner of things. Like I said, latitude and longitude and uh, this thing done at uh, uh, oh, the, the Busby had a, 
a sort of a bit of a real estate thing going on at Waitangi, and um, he wanted to call the area Victoria and said, "Done it, Victoria," uh, you know, because uh, it would lead a, lend a little bit of credence to his uh, real estate thing oh, going right. on. Yep. Um, of course, that never got included in the treaty. A huge amount of this never got included. But um, so here we're kind of getting uh, to the last of it, and uh, then. The only document Look at in that. existence. No one's able to read it. It's just rapid. We're just going through them to uh, get get to the actual yeah, points here. It, yeah, this hot. The point. salient points is what we need. Yep. So let's now find out what the final. There it is. The final draft. What yeah. it actually looked like. So we'll just go back to that. The one just put prior. Uh, uh, there it is. <laughs> right. You're right over there. Yeah. Okay, we're there. Okay, this here is the only document in existence that would qualify as the final draft of of the Treaty of Waitangi, of Teitoritio Waitangi, or the final English draft that became Teitoritio Waitangi. And it is absolutely perfect. Um, the situation today, because this got replaced by something called a formal royal-style version of the treaty, um, th the whole meaning of the, the treaty has been deliberately reinvented. And that was from what year do you, do you pick? Um, the, this it's all started, this insidious move started really with the bringing in of uh, the Treaty of Waitangi Act in 1975 with yeah. Maturata. But, um, yeah, uh, it's been a, a very, very sordid history. Now, let's just make some comparisons. That's, that's quite good. We'll see if um, we can find out if the wording of this final English draft actually existed, you know, uh, or we can prove that it existed in uh, February, March, and April of 1840. So we'll just go... Uh, some of the documents that um, you can still get on microfilm. Now, what happened was Clendon, at the time that the final English draft was written, at his home, knowing that he is U.S. consul himself and knowing that he is going to have to inform his superiors in the United States, takes a copy of it himself which he couldn't use or do anything with until such time as the um, uh, you know, treaty was actually yeah. accepted by the chiefs. And uh, a certain little section of New Zealand in the Bay of Islands became a colony of Britain. Right. So uh, he took that copy and he would hold on to it. But then... He knew that there were certain things that uh, were going to be a problem. First of all, Reverend Henry Williams had said, uh, if, if there's anything in this draft that you present me with which is not translatable, then it's going to have to be changed. Yeah. And then during the uh, treaty proceedings on the 5th of February, 1840, um, uh, Bishop Pompelier 
stood up and made a bit of a scene. He was dressed to the T, apparently. He arrived on the day looking absolutely beautiful, <laughs> and he really made a great impression as he sauntered in, you know. But um, anyway, right in the middle of Hobson speaking, he got up and he made a point about religious freedom, uh, that he wanted to guarantee that there would be religious freedom so that the Catholic people could... Uh, you know, be guaranteed, uh, you know, their their ability to, uh, you know, uh, practice their religion. You have a Pompelia High School in Whangarei. Mm. Yeah. So Catholic school. Clendon was of the opinion, oh, well, something might have to be added to the draft. And, in fact, uh, what Pompelia, the assurances that Pompelia got are sometimes called the fourth article of the treaty. Right. But uh, Busby and Hobson and that considered that the wording was sufficient to cover that, so there didn't need to be a change to that. So when, on the 20th of February, 1840, uh, after there'd been a beautiful big printing situation go on um, at uh, the CMS mission printer, uh, you know, um, uh, Colenso, uh, they had a proclamation, they had uh, the treaty uh, in Maori printed. Um, Clendon had sufficient documents at that point to make a dispatch, dispatch number six, to go to um, John Forsyth. But he put a, a proviso in there saying, well, I don't know if this wording is going to stay exactly like this because he didn't know about the changes that could have occurred. But when Hobson returns from the Southwood, I will verify this, that I will uh, find out what the final wording actually came down to. Yeah. Okay. So Hobson, uh, he'd been trying to get out of the harbour on HMS Herald for a few days, and during that period of time, he was able to prepare some really big dispatches to go to Sir George Gibson, Australia, and also through to um, Lord Normanby in Britain. And uh, so uh, he then managed to get out of the harbour. Uh, there'd been a, a wind blowing directly onto the harbour entrance, which just held the ships in there. They couldn't sail out. And actually, because of that, really, that's why later the Bay of Islands was, uh, you know, uh, dished or, you know, uh, it was uh, discarded as the um, the capital of New Zealand. They needed a better a place to do, to have their capital. Anyway, um, Hobson then went down to uh, what they called the Thames, which was Tamaki area, to have a treaty meeting there. And um, so he's down in the southward, and Clendon is waiting for him to return to give him the final... English draft of the treaty, so you can see that the wording is all the same. Yep. And uh, while at the uh, Waitemata in the Hauraki Gulf, there on the 1st of March, Hobson had a major stroke. He was having trouble with Nias down there. That's important, isn't it? That's that is really, really important. Piece of knowledge to keep in mind. Yep. So Hobson now, he's uh, paralyzed right down his right side. Now, he was an individual who signed documents with his right hand, and uh, that is really important. Something that actually occurred there in uh, the Waitemata uh, 
is basically being used as a means of changing the entire meaning of the Treaty of Waitangi. So this is a pivotal moment. A very pivotal moment. Because James Stuart Freeman, uh, Hobson's secretary, had been educated at Oxford and Eton in Britain, right? Prestigious schools. Yeah, we just we just brought it up for you. Yeah, larger, right. So people could see. And it so he felt this need to create memorial documents. So if you're addressing kings or queens or people in high stations in foreign governments, when you write to them, you send them a memorial document and you couch your language in the most beautiful yeah. terms. And so what happened was. Freeman, after the treaty became a reality, he went back through that hodgepodge of rough notes and he found lovely little words like solicitude <laughs> and, you know, other pretentious language. <coughs> and he concocted these memorial documents to be sent overseas. They're called by uh, Dr. Phil Parkinson formal royal style documents, you, you know. Uh, and they were never to be used in New Zealand. So over a period of oh, several months, I think it might have been up to five months, Freeman sent something like seven of these, and they're all different. Yeah. Some have got uh, Freeman's preamble. Some have got Hobson's preamble. They vary in wording in one way or another to a greater or lesser degree. And while at the Waitamata, with Hobson lying there in his cot paralysed, it must have been a ship in the harbour that uh, Freeman thought, oh, I'll take advantage of that ship leaving to go to Australia or wherever it was going, to take one of these formal royal-style documents to another destination. Right. So he, he put forward the document for Hobson to sign, but Hobson was paralysed on his right arm, so he executed a left-handed signature, probably while lying flat on his back in the cot, and he executed the most tortured, horrible signature of his entire life. This one they were about to make bigger for people. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Now, Freeman had put a huge amount of work into this document, and he's got a beautiful hand, so the penmanship is superb. But now the document is ruined by um, this terrible tortured signature. Now, a proud captain like uh, Hobson and now a lieutenant governor because he's got one part of New Zealand um, has agreed to form a colony, he would not allow that, a proud man like him, to go overseas and because it would immediately alert his superiors to what degree Hobson was incapacitated. Yeah. So that became rubbish and should have been actually thrown in the nearest waste paper basket. But obviously Freeman took it ashore when he went ashore on the uh, 4th of March to attend the uh, Treaty Assembly at Tamaki. 4th of March? Hmm? 4th of March or 4th of February? No, well, we're now into March That's because... Right. Oh, um, further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I know we are. Because Hobson had his stroke on the 1st of March. Gotcha, yeah. And uh, so uh, then by either Freeman organising it 
to go overland to the mission of Reverend Robert Maunsell, or um, it might have been Captain Gordon Brown uh, as the HMS Herald was going north on the night of the 4th, Captain Gordon Brown was sailing down and there were ships passing in the night, one going north, one going south, and Gordon Brown had been uh, carrying um, a whole lot of documents pr uh, that had been produced by the CMS mission in Paihia, and these were to be sent over to Robert Maunsell in uh, Port Waikato. Right. So it could well be that Gordon Brown, as he came through the area and had to take his boat across the portage, picked up that document as well and took it on to Reverend Maunsell. And Maunsell says that uh, these items that he received had been sent up by the secretary. Well, obviously the things he had received were this defective formal royal style document in English and just, also, I'm just try uh, and bring that up. Yeah, that's uh, not it. The the one we had that. Uh, yeah, no, um, no, we had it a little while ago. That one. Yep. Bring it up. And also, a printed <clears throat> Maori copy that had been produced on the CMS Mission Press on the seventeenth uh, of February, eighteen forty. So. These were going to be distributed around to the different treaty assemblies to give to uh, Maori chiefs who signed the treaty so they could have it in their own language. Right. So printed Maori. So you had the, this is it here. Yep. Okay, so, good. So, yeah. Okay. So I was starting to think to myself, oh, God, here we go. Yep. So this here, this is the crux of the whole matter and really um, what led on to um, – the treaty being falsified by uh, manipulators and social engineers after 1975. This little glitch in the system, and I'll, I'll get into it a little bit more. Good. Right. So, um, right. Uh, I, th I saw, I guess you guys have um, showing a lot of the pictures and that of, I was a Ponsonby boy. I uh, went to Ponsonby School. Actually, we'll, we'll bring a couple of your... Uh Cameo appearances on uh, stills. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll have a look at what Ponsonby used to look like back in the acid tripping, th uh, acid tripping throwback days. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, so... Um, oh, look at that. It's quite cosmopolitan, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, it is. Uh, I have a, a friend. He Well, he, he passed on now, but he was an educator. And um, the model that they used to use for uh, demographic studies was Ponsonby School oh, wow. because we had people from virtually every nationality and, uh, you know, I, I look in there and I see, you know, like little Vivian Chan who was my jive partner in the class of Mr. Porter, you know, and... Uh, She's got you a know, good memory, eh? Yeah, I'm the little squirt down here in the left-hand corner. And, um, you know, we were all getting along famously well and uh, there have been uh, video documentaries done by long-term Polynesian residents in the area um, who said, like, we, we thought possibly <laughs> was like a... We thought it up a bit. Uh, yeah, well... Yeah. But anyway, it wouldn't melt in your mouth. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, yeah, hmm. uh, we were all getting along fine, but then, of course, the Polynesian Panther Party moved to town, set up uh, 
possibly as their uh, headquarters, they were all gang members, or mostly all gang members, and uh, they were mostly the the founding members were part of what they called the Nigs Gang, but there was uh, also um, mongrel mob, black power, you know, all of these gangs, and uh, they uh, came under criticism by the Ponsonby people, the people who lived in Grayland and also Newton, and even their parents or their elders, you know, were trying to get them to cool it because they were sauntering around and causing, you know, a bit of grief. Uh, basically, it was their activities, I believe, that led on to the dawn raids uh, in part. Uh, yeah, uh, that was the old home. Well, while he's talking, um, just throw them up. Yeah. The all the Ponsonby ones so people can see and, you know, it's a bit of a, right, so a, bit of a nostalgia trip here. Yeah, so there they are. That there is Lee's Institute. Uh, yeah. Uh, the one on the left for a belt to put up. The one on the right will be the active one. Oh, okay. Yep. Now we're uh, active with that one. Okay. Um, this is just up the road from me. That's the grocery store of the Barner family. And uh, actually, one of the Barners, I don't know if uh, it was this group, but uh, became the, the one and only member of the Polynesian Panther Party. Um the other, yeah, th that there is Max Dairy, where you could get a damn good milkshake. It was really good. Yeah, and uh, that's Lee's Institute, where uh, my uncles, uh, you know, went and be were trained as uh, gymnasts before the Second World War. The other part of it was um, a library. That's the Ponsonby Post Office with the glue pot in the background. If you want them to slow down, just say, uh, tie ho a bit. And that one's, you know, then uh, you've also got the glue pot, and uh, my uncles kept it afloat. I mean, they got known as the drunkles in the end because of their tremendous uh, contributions to keeping that establishment uh, alive. And uh, the uh, individual in the bottom row in the middle, that's my Uncle Ron who flew Lancaster during the Second World War, and the individual up to the side is... Uh, my mother's cousin Tom, who flew Spitfires all through the war, and these individuals, when they came back from the war, they seemed to really need their watering holes, you know, because uh, they'd yeah. been through some real traumatic experiences. And uh, yeah, so Ron uh, was a great patron of the glue pot. Now, where the trees are in this picture, there. That was where I first encountered the Polynesian Panther Party, where they set up a tent. And I went to them, uh, and I could see that at the back of their tent, they had uh, posters of Huey Newton, Angela Davis, uh, Rap Brown, who I think he'd burnt down half of Cincinnati. Uh, and I, I said, well... Black Lives Matter, was he? Yeah, why do, you, why do you guys, you know, have these posters of these people... Um, you know, what's this got to do with you? And I talked to a lady who had a beautiful crimson scarf on and the big sunglasses, and she followed me off onto a Maori girl who said she just returned from China and it was like going back to the Marae and, you know, uh, and over, uh, yeah, you can go to the next picture if you like. Um, this is a documentary from Polynesian people who... Remember Ponsonby before it became uh, Polynesian Panther Territory, and they stated in their documentary how we were all getting along so well. You know, things yep. started to fall apart a bit 
after the dawn raids in 74, but before the gangs arrived in town, we were getting along just fine. Yeah, and... Uh, oh, who's that? Oh, okay, well, um, in our original home, um, you can see our Chrysler car parked outside uh, the house, and that was our taxi to the beaches and uh, our recreational vehicle, and it was always loaded down with a grandmother and a great aunt and uh, also a dog and, you know, four kids and mum and dad, you know. But, um, yeah, I always uh, liked the cars and now I sort of collect them a bit. And um, that's what the house used to look like and that's what it sort of looked like uh, in more recent times, but it's getting another big revamp at the moment. Anyway, basically what I'm saying is, I have a lot of experience of what happened in Ponsonby. I saw it all unfold, uh, all of the strutting and uh, posturing and, you know, these accusations of British imperialism and the adoption of this fake history that had nothing whatsoever to do with the Polynesians, but how it then spilled over. I was so surprised it had the roll-on effect that it had. And uh, before too long, Maori, who'd shown no interest whatsoever, started to jump into the game. And then they started up with these accusations of, you know, oppression under the British, which I'd never heard years before um, as a young carpenter living in Maori communities. Um, and I saw everything changing before our eyes. Um, yeah. So uh, the outcome of it all was that... Uh, Matu Rata, um, who's seen in this picture with the Queen at Waitangi in 1972, he got into the game. He could see some of the advantages of uh, going along with, um, you know, how the squeaky wheel gets the uh, oil, yeah. um, <clears throat> you know. And uh, so he started bringing in a tribalist agenda, and uh, his mission was to bring in an English version of the Treaty of Waitangi to sit alongside Te Tiriti o Waitangi and be co-equal to it. Now, that's a very strange thing for a Maori individual like uh, Maturata because you'd think, well, he would be absolutely proud that the only treaty wording that existed was Te Tiriti o Waitangi yep. in the Maori language. And um, if you get a translation of Te Tiriti o Waitangi, it's a very fair, totally egalitarian document. It's for everybody. And um, it says in Article 2 that the rights of the treaty uh, go out to Kina Rangatira, Kina Hapu, Kina Tangata Katoa, Anutarani. Yeah. So to the chiefs and the tribes and to all the people of New Zealand, which you don't hear these days. No, there was. Can we right. leave that bit off? So that was a really inconvenient thing to have in there. And so he wants to bring in another version of the treaty, a version in English. Right. Okay, so he had some choices. He could have brought in the 1869 uh, version of the treaty produced by the Native Department 
and commissioned by the New Zealand government. By 1869, the government, knowing that the final English draft had been lost and that everybody and their dog, if they wanted to know what the treaty said, had to do a back translation of it, they wanted to have an absolutely official one produced by the Native Department that they could use when they were deciding upon legislation, you know, the drafting of laws and all of that. Okay, but Maturata didn't want that one. He wanted uh, the f a formal royal style copy. Do we have that? Do we have that in our uh, archives there? Well, we, w the one he <coughs> wanted was the one with Hobson's defective signature on it. That one there? That one there. That's the one he wanted. That is the wording that he wanted. Right. Okay. Now, why did he want that one? Good question. Well, it's because it's got mention of forests and fisheries in it, which uh, didn't uh, come into Teitoritio Waitangi when the final draft was written. But also in Article 2, it says that the rights of the treaty are to the chiefs and tribes of New Zealand and to the respective families and individuals thereof. No clear mention of the settlers. Now, I guess you could interpret it, as I think um, uh, some individuals have in government, when you talk about the chiefs and tribes of New Zealand, well, there is a tribe called Nati Wikatoria, right? So the, the tribe of Queen Victoria, yep. <laughs> right? So in that respect, uh, the, the English settlers are, you know, included. But it's not that clear. But whereas Teitoritio Waitangi is very, very clear to the chiefs, you know, to the chiefs and tribes and to all the people of New Zealand. So he, he managed to get that into legislation in uh, the Treaty of Waitangi Act 1975. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we'll go into what actually happened at Port Waikato as we proceed. But um, when he finally was able to bring this very defective English version into our legislation based on obsolete rough draft notes and not the final draft of the treaty and based on a document that was not the official government back translation of the treaty produced in 1869. And there was the Native Department. By the Native Department of New Zealand under commission from the New Zealand government. That's the one. If he wanted an English one there in our legislation, that was the only one that he was really technically supposed to have. Yeah. And it's fine. It mirrors uh, the Littlewood document perfectly. You know, slightly different wording, uh, you know, but... That's every translation that anybody does. They're going to put in a few different words, but yeah. the intent and the meaning was exactly the same. So um, anyway, uh, once he got that document into our legislation, he says, oh, look, the uh, this must be the English understanding of the treaty. Oh, oh, look, it says forests and fisheries. Oh, and then... What he would do, he started to muddy the waters, he and his cohorts muddied the waters, and what they had done 
is they had pushed Te Tauritio Waitangi, the only legal Treaty of Waitangi wording, aside into the shadows forever yep. <clears throat> and totally replaced it with a whole new wording. You imagine what the hue and cry would be in the United States if, uh, if somebody came that. along and said, oh, we don't really like your constitution, it's a little bit too fair, but look, we're going to put in this new one and we've just shoved this one aside into the shadows and uh, you can kiss that goodbye along with all of your rights. Yep. Yeah, would, they would be up in arms. Yeah, they certainly would be up in arms. Probably I think why they're, they're taking all of us off us. I think the vigilantes would be in the streets pretty quick. Yeah. So, uh, but that's effectively what he did. Now, not only did he do that. So basically, before we go on, because so yeah, we yeah. can keep people with us. Yeah. So the current Treaty of Waitangi, the English version, is a fraud. It's a total fraud, and it is what defines what the Treaty of Waitangi says and means these days. Exactly. Now, here's where a lot of people are getting confused out there. Uh-huh. Because a lot of them, a lot of the people jumping up and down saying, you know, what about our fisheries, forests, birds, all that sort of stuff, they're saying that the English one is the uh, the translation of the Maori one, which we know it's not, right? right? Because you're about to present evidence that... It isn't. So how do people, how do we sort of educate these people to show that there is no division? It was always meant to be one people moving forward. Mm -hmm. And yet you've got antagonists on both sides. Basically, um, it's, it's a, it's a money-making, it's a printing press, isn't it? The 1975 Treaty of Waitangi has become a, become a printing press. It's a cash cow. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and the everyday Maori or European or whoever, Chinese, Samoan, Tonga, it doesn't matter. None of them are benefiting. You just yep. got to look at the record homeless. You just got to look at the amount of charities out there trying to feed people every day. Government's failing because they keep taking what should be spent on the people and putting it in their pockets. Right, and it's only right. really uh, the Maori elite of today who actually who benefit. benefit. That's right. And there's no trickle down, or very little trickle down that I know of that going that goes to the tribes to the the iwi. But now they're pretending to the with hey poor hmm? hey poor poor, and they're bringing that in. Fiddle. That's the next big move to absolutely have complete domination over New Zealand by the year 2040. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll make sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, but you talk about uh, Hobson's intent. As each chief signed the treaty on the um, 6th of February, 1840, coming forward, Hobson extended his hand and said, He iwi tahi tatau, we are now one people. And if you look at the, uh, the preamble of the treaty, if you look at other sections of the treaty, um, it's all about becoming one people and we're all British subjects under the guidance of uh, Queen Victoria. One nation, basically. One nation. Now, they try and argue, um, okay, here's a dirty trick that they pulled. Um, like I said, the Maori version says that the rights of the treaty are kina rangatira, kina hapu, kina tangata katoa nutarani, and then it goes into te tino rangatira tanga. Okay, that's, that goes on to that. Now, what it actually means... Uh, in this area. Uh, right at this it, point, you're going to have Maldives out there saying, what's that white guy trying to tell us what that really means? Okay, well, 
Okay, I'll tell you what tina rangatira tanga means. First of all, what uh, the Queen, what was said in the treaty in Article 2 is that when the Queen, uh, you know, forms a colony, you will not have to forfeit your land or any of your goods That's to right. the Queen. Basically, the Queen's shadow goes across the land and you sit in the shadow of the Queen. Protected. Yeah, you're protected by the Queen, but you're also subject to all of the advantages and disadvantages. If you, uh, you know, commit murder or whatever, you know, you can be hung, you know, under the law. So you can't eat your neighbour. Yeah, you're not allowed to do that. No. Makes sense. Right. So a lot of uh, the uh, ag um, activists um, stated, well, Oh, this tino rangatira tanga is a very, very big word in Maori. It means chiefly rights of succession. But it's not used in that way. It's just used that uh, the chiefs and the tribes and all the people of New Zealand will hold on to their goods. Yeah, it's, it just means possession. But they basically could pluck that from te Waitangi waitangi and kind of shove it into the English version, and make it mean rights of succession of the chiefs. And that, in other words, oh, no, uh, the chiefs didn't give up their sovereignty. All right. they did was allow the British to be governors or some say see, it was see like, to their affairs. Some say it was like the, first, the country's first immigration document uh, where they allowed people in. Never mind less Irish Scots who went under any queen anyway, but mm -hmm. free agents really. Like, okay, so another thing they said was, oh, we see this word here, kawana. And it means also they have kawana tanga. The yeah. kawana. What is kawana? It's kavana. Oh, I see. Right? Yeah. So it's basically another one of these words where, um, you know, uh, Maori have changed it, you know, or they're saying it the way they can say it, you know. It's a bit like uh, the name Hone is John or Arapata is, yeah, but, but is Albert. But you'd think if they're going to say John, they'd say Hon. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. <laughs> Not Hone. <laughs> yeah, Hone. But, but anyway. you see, that's the thing. Yeah. Uh, you, Every Maori word uh, word has got to end in a vowel. Wow. Yeah, every, yeah. So that's why they had to have hone. It's pretty cool. Yeah. But anyway, so they said, oh, that word that uh, Reverend Henry Williams has used for sovereignty, oh, no, 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 no. That's not adequate enough. Uh, he should have asked the Maori chiefs for their mana or mana tanga. Well, mana, <laughs> it's a person's self-pride. It's based on their prowess in battle as great warriors. It could be based on their royal lineage from great ancestors. So why would anyone give that up? You can't give it up. Exactly. And no one asked the uh, chiefs to give it up. They needed a word that would sort of enscapulate, if you like, um, the... Um, the authority that the governor would need or the queen would need in order to bring about laws in New Zealand. Yep. So let's have a look at it. Kawana. 
governor, right? Yep. The, the printing press, the CMS Mission printing press, was constantly uh, producing literature. They were pumping out a hell of a lot of literature and basically thousands of items. And Maori loved all of this printing, and uh, they, they grabbed every book as it came off the press pretty much. And then they had individuals in the uh, iwi, like Honeheke, who were good uh, speakers of English, and they could uh, get, say, the Bible, which was in the Maori language, and they could have somebody read the you know, all the stories of the Bible to you know, groups assembled sitting around and listening. And, of course, one of those stories had to do with Jesus Christ and Pontius Pilate. Oh, right. Now, Pontius Pilate <laughs> was the governor of Judea. And uh, so Mary could fully understand that over Pontius Pilate was this great Rangatira, who was Julius Caesar, coming down to Pontius Pilate. And then below him was another hierarchy, which was the Sanhedrin of the uh, Judean people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, King Agrippa and uh, the royals. But over them was Pontius Pilate. So if any of these guys stepped out of line, Pontius Pilate could uh, have them crucified if he wanted to. So that they understood the hierarchy. Queen Victoria coming down to uh, Hobson, the governor. And then you had your tohungas and you had uh, your chiefs and your kamatuas and well, your learned elders and all of them. Yep. <clears throat> they were under the new governor. Right. And... Um, that's the only way it can work, because the queen does not enter into partnerships with anyone. That's right. The queen is the sovereign, and um, you know it's an absolute impossibility under the Magna Carta, or on the was it the 1866 uh, Bill of Rights, or anything like that, to water the whole thing down. Where the British are only here to work for the Maori chiefs and keep law and order. Yeah. I've always been astounded, okay? <clears throat> I've always wondered, if it's such a sore point, why Māori didn't ask the Queen herself to make a public statement as to exactly what it all meant. You notice that? You notice they've been silent on that particular request? Would you not say, Queen, back us up, what we said here is true, isn't it? And that would have settled it right then and there, but they never did. Well, they understood it perfectly well, what had actually happened. Um, you know... Um, but you're talking about the change, and that's the reason... Yeah, yeah. Um, what had happened with Maori in... Uh, well, you had that period of time where, they, where Busby came in. What had happened is Maori had slaughtered the crew of Marion Dufresne. And then they were very worried about... French reprisal. So they wrote to the King of England at the time in 1841 and they said, would you be our protector? Yeah, we are very worried about the tribe of Marion. Right. So they even got a Union Jack and they put it on the headland, I think it was of the Bay of Islands, and uh, 
anyway, because of this, this letter to King William, um, Busby, who was a, uh, a person producing wine <laughs> in Australia, um, he was sent to New Zealand to be a consul. So he arrived, and basically, it was kind of like the British were saying, oh, if you internationalists want to wage war with New Zealand and overwhelm it and take over, then um, you uh, it's over my dead body, you know. So then Busby, uh, he wrote up that document he didn't really need to, called, uh, you know, the a Declaration of, uh, you know, of, of the Confederation of United <coughs> Chiefs. Declaration um, of Independence, 1835. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah. And uh, they even got a flag, uh, which is basically the uh, the Shaw Savile flag. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, yeah, um, didn't know you that. know, so that all these things, you know. And, um, but unfortunately, by 1837, uh, Napui were fighting amongst each other. And a war was going on between Pomare and Titore, and Titore ended up getting killed in that, and the settlers got caught in the middle. And at that point, Hobson was sent in from Australia on uh, HMS Rattlesnake. You know, they, they seemed to have these funny names for their ships at the time. And he had to kind of quell the, uh, the war and get everybody at peace again, and then he wrote a great big document for goodness sake, form a colony in New Zealand because Maori, the missionaries, all sorts of people had been petitioning the House of Lords or through to Britain to form a colony. But the British didn't want anything to do with it. There was nothing really down here that they wanted as such. One thing that was good was cowrie because you could go to the Battle of Trafalgar and you could have a mast that was 10 feet higher than all the French masts, <laughs> so you could get a little bit more wind. Yep, <clears throat> that kind of thing. So, the, But what uh, the, uh, the attitude was is that here's Britain up here, and as the French would say, New Zealand is l'autre bout du monde, right down here, <laughs> half a world away. Yeah. And um, it had a lot of internal problems of the warfare between the tribes and all of that. And it was only Sir George Gibson, Australia, who finally said, for goodness sake, form a colony in New Zealand because the French are making a move on New Zealand and I don't want a traditional enemy of Britain poised so close to Australia that they could use New Zealand as a staging area for, um, you know, attacking Australia. So that was really the deciding factor. And when I was going through archives and looking at a lot of microfilms and um, pieces of paper out of, uh, you know, the British Parliamentary papers or, you know, just letters that were sent between departments, it was one that said, Hobson has just been sent to New Zealand to secure a treaty with the Maori people. If he fails, we will never try again.
to the end, just watch and see It's all started, everything's begun And you are over Cause we're taking down the CCP The evil CCP.